the difference in quality across the insurance industry you know, leads to opportunities if you're a good stock picker. So what we try and do is find the best 30 to 35 companies. Uh, typically are those operating in more underwriting niches. Hello, Matthew Grant here, and welcome, or of course, welcome back if you are one of our regulars. And on the subject of regulars, today's guest, Nick Martin, is himself making a welcome return to the InStep podcast after a few years' absence. Nick is a long-time enthusiast for startups and originally joined us for a very special episode, but more on that later. In his day job, Nick is manager at Polar Capital Global Insurance Strategy, and through his role, Nick has a fascinating view of what's happening in the established insurance companies. He talks regularly to the management of insurers and reinsurers around the world and has seen some very clear themes for what drives success in insurance. We've got a lot to get through today, so let's kick things off. Nick, really delighted to have you. You were one of our first guests on the Instat London podcast. Uh, so some of the success of what we've been doing is goes down to you because if we hadn't got it right first time, we wouldn't be doing it now. Uh, you've been a professional investor for over 20 years. Today, you're the manager of Polar Capital's global insurance strategy, as we were going to be referring it to. You've been involved since 2001, and you know Instat very well, in addition, of course, to being on that first podcast. But your day job is selecting and managing the insurance and reinsurance companies from public listed companies that Polar uh, invests in with your recommendation. Um, Welcome. Really great to have you and and really interested to hear about your perspective on what is happening in the world of insurance these days. Well, thank you very much for having me back, Matthew. And I was just, I checked the date earlier. We did this first back in July 2017. So I remember very fondly that first podcast. And um, I think the setup today is, is notably different from when I did it with Paolo all those years ago when we were sitting in a small room and recording that first podcast on, the, on his iPhone voice recorder. Uh, we did it all in one take and then he uploaded it. And the rest is history. Well, not just history, but I actually checked the stats and you've had two downloads in the last month. So <laughs> people are still... <laughs> well, I think, I think my mum still listens to it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not, the, you're not the only one that's using personal contacts to get their numbers up there. But before we go on any further, we just have a compliance angle to get right. So we're going to be talking to you today about your personal views of what you're seeing around established organizations. We may touch on what's happening with Polar Capital, but we're not here to give advice. You're not here to give advice. We're not talking about specific companies. Anything else you want to add in, Nick? Nothing I will say constitutes investment advice, whether that be for the insurance industry overall or, or when we talk about uh, any any particular company. But thank you for, for that. So I know the strategy started at Hiscox. You were there and then moved to Polar Capital. Today, you've got over £2 billion pounds under management. Those are the companies that are being invested in. What else should we know about what you're doing at Polar Capital? Yeah, so, so maybe just a little bit of history. So the strategy started back in 1998, as you said, at Hiscox, and it effectively replaced what Hiscox were already doing for uh, high net worth individuals or so-called Lloyd's names. Uh, that, so they were investing directly 
into the Lloyds of London insurance market. And then that, that was sort of replaced uh, with, with, with the strategy. We started out with about £4 million worth of capital. And the idea was really to, to leverage the intelligence that, that, that Hiscox's position in the insurance market sort of had, you know, particularly within specialty insurance and reinsurance, and really to try and pick the best-in-class uh, listed insurance companies uh, for investors. It, it was quite challenging uh, growing assets as part of an insurance company uh, so we moved over to polar capital in 2010 and i think a key problem you know facing prospective insurance industry investors is that it's a an industry where the overall returns are pretty unexciting but i think you know within that you know whilst the average return uh, might not be appealing you know what really matters is the range of returns around that average and that's actually much higher in the insurance industry than you typically find in many others or maybe said another way the difference in quality across the insurance industry you know leads to opportunities if you're a good stock picker so what we try and do is find the best 30 to 35 companies uh, typically are those operating in more underwriting niches I would call them sort of big fishes swimming in small ponds and largely avoiding the uh, the big conglomerates. And at the end of the day, uh, from an investment perspective, a well-run insurer can be a compounding machine. And, and we define uh, that by growth in book value per share or said another way, uh, NAV or net asset value and dividends over time. And our, and our companies have grown their book values on average 11% per annum over the over the life of, of the strategy, which is, is 23 years. And over any reasonable time horizon, investors should expect share price performance to, to largely match that, that book value growth uh, value creation. And that 11% return is, for anybody that is looking at, I mean, everyone these days is, will be looking at investing in returns. That's a really healthy return for any investment but to do that consistently, as you said, it is a reminder that mainstream insurance still does deliver returns. And we talk a lot about innovation and the new companies out there and some of those peak and some of those fall. But yeah, what we're going to be talking about today is how value is being generated by established companies and the kind of things they're looking at. And it's an important thing to keep an eye on for anybody, whether they're starting up a, a new company working in an existing company. So really looking forward to getting into that. And, and so as part of that, can you just talk about... When you're looking for those companies that you reference there in your portfolio of 30 or so organizations, big question, so maybe sort of high level initially, but what would you characterize is making those companies successful and being able to generate the returns that you need to keep them into your uh, investment portfolio? At its essence, insurance companies, and I mean, we're talking obviously sort of property casualty, non-life insurance companies earn money in, in two ways. And hopefully they make an underwriting profit. Uh, and secondly, they make money uh, from investment returns. But uh, but companies typically don't want to have too much exciting things in their investment portfolios because they're taking on risk on, on the underwriting uh, side of, of the balance sheet. So you know the vast majority uh, of companies have very dull and boring investment portfolios they have lots of cash because of, you obviously need that uh, that liquidity in order to pay claims which can happen at any time and then they have the sort of short-term bonds uh, so therefore you know in large part the investment returns across the industry are quite similar so so where the difference really comes is on the underwriting side uh, and the underwriting track record of the industry is is not fantastic but the, as I was saying before the dispersion around that mean is pretty significant. So, you know, those best-in-class underwriters tend to be um, 
the companies that are that are really obviously understanding the risk that they're underwriting so they're slicing and dicing that risk better than competitors you know often it's about the sort of you know the mentality and the culture within the the companies them, themselves because you know success in the insurance industry it's often comes from you know playing defense you know really well uh, and then and then taking advantage of a, of a sort of you know, a harder market conditions in a more limited period of time Okay, well, as you're probably already realizing, you're going to get some great insights from Nick. But to give us all a chance to absorb what he's saying, I'll be jumping in from time to time to reflect or explain. Now, this last part is very interesting. You heard Nick say, success in insurance comes from playing defense and then taking advantage of a harder market. We're hearing a lot about hard markets these days. That's when rates go up in the specialty and reinsurance markets as they are just now. Now, Nick goes on to explain which companies have the greatest opportunity and what options they have to play defence and, of course, what that means in practice. The secret to success is, is always right-sizing your balance sheet relative to the underwriting opportunity. And it, we could have periods of time where you know, good companies actually cut back their, their premium volume quite significantly uh, and, uh, and almost shrink their balance sheet through share buybacks and returning capital uh, via uh, dividends uh, and they and therefore maintaining you know the right sort of level of, of premium but it takes a sort of management team and, and usually sort of significant management ownership to do that because not every company necessarily wants to to, to reduce their business by you know, 25% or a third or whatever it is sort of a peak to trough across the cycle and I think that's why our focus historically has been more on those smaller insurers where managements have a have a significant interest rather than uh, some of the uh, the bigger conglomerates who tend to you know ha- have more incentive to to grow almost irrespective uh, of where they find themselves in in their particular market cycles. A lot of what you do is spending time talking to people working in these organizations. What's important to them in terms of things they're looking at and how relevant is the world of innovation to these organizations? Insurance uh, at its core is the risk business. So management teams have always got a lot to worry about. I see sort of risk becoming more and more complex over time, you know, whether that be a result of climate change, you know, supply chain disruption, wars, you know, lots of things are going on right now uh, in the market. And, and then there's you know, been some quite significant changes in, in, in recent years. And you know, one example of that is a reduction in risk appetite by, by many insurers that, that, that we're seeing, particularly in specialty markets. And, you know, if you go back maybe a few years ago, if you wanted to buy a $50 million liability policy, you'd probably go to your broker and they would place that risk with, with probably one or two markets, probably one. Nick mentioned markets there. Now, what this refers to in London and Lloyd's insurance speak is an insurance company or a Lloyd syndicate that is covering the risk. So when he says one or two markets, Nick means one or two insurers. Not to be confused with the term, the London market, which is more generic altogether. Today, insurer appetite is, is more like 5 to $10 million per risk. So that same policy is now being shared between 5 and 10 insurers. And that's uh, leading to um, 
a lot more sort of price discipline uh, within the market. We've seen pricing rising over uh, 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 really since 2018 or so. You know, there's a big topic of inflation we might be able to touch on. And uh, but but you know, but also there's sort of the big risks that are coming. And obviously, we we sadly had the pandemic. You know, cyber risk is is a is a big uh, topic of conversation in in every boardroom, not just insurance companies and and as is ESG. And I'm sure we can we can touch on elements of cyber ESG uh, as we go through the conversation, Matthew. And, and indeed we will. Well, I just wanted to come back to that point about the, the sort of syndicated nature of the risk, because as you said there, previously one organization, one insurance organization might take on a large element of the insurance, not necessarily share that with the rest of the market. It's a, it's a really interesting point you've made, which I hadn't thought about in the way you described it before, which is because this is a syndicated risk, these insurance companies are going to get visibility into how their peers are pricing. And to some extent, if people underprice, then they're going to realize they're underpricing or they're probably going to have a loss. So it's a really interesting angle, which I don't think people are sort of always aware about how the overall quality level rises because people are seeing what other insurance organizations are doing. Absolutely. I mean, so we're within, you know, the the, um, the strategy that, that I manage, you know, roughly, uh, sort of, um, in a more than eighty percent of it is is uh, invested in, in commercial insurance, and, and a large reason for that is that you do have this element of, of syndicated risk. Now, if you're buying you know, multiple tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of coverage, uh, you're having to buy that from multiple markets, uh, and therefore you do have this sort of a uh, more robust pricing discipline. You pay more of a, a sort of more reasonable price because you're having multiple sets of eyes from multiple companies evaluating that that risk uh, and therefore you do have a, a more sort of robust underwriting discipline and therefore hopefully better profitability over over time than you sometimes find maybe on on the on the personal line side hi henry here part of the research team at instech our new report parametric insurance in 2022 the 150 plus companies to watch is now available to download. It offers a comprehensive review of the entire parametric insurance value chain, where there are opportunities for innovation, what challenges companies are facing, Instech's estimate of the current market size, and details of more than 150 companies active in parametric insurance. The report is free to Instech corporate members. For more details on what to expect and a downloadable preview, Go to instech.co slash parametric. So I do want to come back to ESG. You mentioned it, particularly the environmental side of it, or more specifically, even around the move to uh, net zero carbon. So when you're talking to these insurers, what are you seeing in the balance that they're thinking about just now between the investment they're making in their own, uh, the investment they're making where they are potentially exposed to carbon versus how they're thinking about it from an underwriting point of view and you know, looking for new opportunities, but also having to manage the fact that you know, certain areas they would have insured in the past, such as fossil fuels, are, are going to be declining and, you know, and are less and less acceptable to insure. There's multiple uh, aspects to, to, to ESG. There's obviously the impact it has on the insurance industry itself and, and its business model, how it manages investment portfolios, how you underwrite. But I think just as a, as a broader uh, sort of an opening comment it, it, you have to think about a sort of perspective of ESG across probably you know all, all, all industries and if you go back 
to last year, the EU introduced uh, what's called the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or the SFDR, and that requires all asset management firms to classify uh, their funds into into one of three categories, Article 6, 8, or 9, uh, depending on where you are in terms of your product sustainability uh, objective. And and, the last stats that I saw from Morningstar showed at the end of uh, September 21, close to a quarter of overall EU funds are either Article 8, which is uh, they actually promote ESG characteristics and my strategy falls under that categorization, or Article 9, which is really sort of the ESG funds that have a you know a real sort of strong sustainable objective. And those two categories account for just over a third of assets under management. So you've got this sort of big trend in investment markets towards you know, more sort of ESG-friendly uh, money and uh, and another sort of way to cut that same cake at the end of last year, you know, close to 3,000 institutional investors that represented over $120 trillion of assets as signed up to the UN PRI. UN PRI, we'll find out what that means in a moment. Stand by for more acronyms and their meanings. Which incorporates ESG issues into the investment practice, so we we see that sort of push from the investment's point of view, and then you've got as well, you know, the, the increased sustainability uh, reporting. So the TCFD, you know, the class titles for climate-related financial disclosures, the TNFD, which is the sort of nature-related disclosures, similar to that, and all of this, you know, presents you know really good opportunities, I think, for for insurers to develop innovative products and solutions to help support resilience across many sectors because you know, at the uh, end of the day, when, when all of these companies are shining a brighter light on all the risks they have because of you know, ESG reporting requirements and other reporting standards, those companies have to demonstrate to those stakeholders that they're managing those risks appropriately. And that's where insurance can really step in and take advantage uh, of, of this and, and help their clients. So, Nick, you did a great job there of spelling out all the acronyms, but you did miss one, which is UNPRI. Can you just tell us what that stands Absolutely. for? Absolutely. It's the UN Principles for Responsible uh, Investment, Matthew. Great. And we won't tell anybody. We actually pulled that. You have to look it up. <laughs> exactly. Good. And then in terms of what insurers are investing in, uh, what's quite intriguing now is looking at the landscape is where there's some quite elegant solutions that marry out the needs for insurers to move towards um, net zero, but also in turn supporting some of the initiatives out there. And I know this is sort of also a personal area of interest for you. What are examples of things you're seeing that you, you like particularly in that space? One area is around nature-based uh, solutions. Uh, so, so this is isn't much more than just uh, going out and planting more trees. And you know, what this is, in, in essence, is the insurance industry using nature as a risk prevention partner and probably and that's best illustrated uh, by example um, one we really like is what the Nature Conservancy uh, are doing with the city of Miami. They're restoring the Morningside Park waterfront with, with the support of, of the Chubb Charitable Foundation and what they're doing there is using the nature-based solutions namely um, strategically planting mangroves and what they're doing is reducing flood risk and they're increasing resilience to current and f- uh, future threats of climate change including you know, sea level rise and it's, it's obviously much better and having more mangroves and it is having much higher concrete walls. The wind and the swell waves are rapidly reduced as they pass through those mangroves, obviously lessening the wave damage you have during storms. And, uh, you know, you reduce the tsunami heights, so that helps to reduce the loss of life and, and, and damage to all those areas where those mangroves are. 
we saw a report from the World Economic Forum uh, that showed prioritizing nature-based solutions in a sort of post-COVID-19 recovery strategy you know, can create 400 million jobs. It can add $10 trillion a year by 2030 to the economy uh, and sort of you know, a million dollars invested in sort of coastal habitat restoration. So it creates 40 jobs. And just to put that in context, you know, that report suggested that same uh, dollar investment would create sort of you know, 19 jobs in aviation or sort of seven in finance, five in oil and gas or, or, or whatever. There's a huge merit uh, to nature-based solutions. So, uh, you know, we look forward to the industry uh, doing a little bit more in that over time. That's a great example. And you mentioned jobs in there. How is the insurance world doing attracting a broader set of talent? The sort of talent war is, is, is often a topic on your podcast. And, uh, you know, it is a real issue. And it's particularly when it comes to tech talent, and sadly, insurance is probably not you know, near the top of most young people's wish lists when it comes to a, a future career. Insurance is one of the few industries that is relevant to all of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs. You know, the industry is fundamental to supporting global resilience and sustainability. Uh, and when insurance is present, the recovery in GDP that you get post a disaster is significant. And I think the industry's importance to society overall is often misunderstood. And that's all that, that work within the industry, you know, have a role to play uh, when it comes to sort of talking about it a little bit more. And there's some great initiatives out there that amplify the uh, the message that the insurance industry is a force for good. Uh, we've been involved with the Insurance Development Forum, the IDF, for, for a number of years. Uh, there's also the IICF, the uh, Insurance Industry Charitable Foundation. So, uh, uh, so many sort of good initiatives for, uh, for us all probably to do a little bit more with. Just want to change tactic a little bit, Nick, and talk about what's been happening in the public markets with some of the insure techs that went public. And yeah, apparently all of them have now are lower than the listing price. And, yeah, some of them went very high and then dropped back down again. How does that reflect to what's happening generally in that market and maybe compare and contrast with yeah, the more established insurance markets. Yeah, it's certainly been a bit of a roller coaster uh, for for some of those insurance IPOs. You know, especially those that that went public via SPACs or special purpose acquisition uh, companies. Uh, and that, but that comment is true for for most industries. It's not just particular to the insurance and the insure techs. But uh, I think just generally, you know, one of the key attributes uh, you know of a good management team of a listed company is you have to manage your investor expectations. You know, most will try and, uh, and under-promise and over-deliver. And the trouble you can have with, with IPOs is, is there is a bit of an incentive to, to promise a, a little bit too much. And, and usually this is uh, centered around growth. You know, and you can measure that with you know, customer numbers or, or premium revenues. It is maybe different in, in insurance to many other industries. It actually, it's not that difficult to grow. If, if you sort of have some 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 capital uh, to, to to back it, uh, you know, insurance is is unusual, and it's, I think this is a point that people who work within the industry don't always sort of think, maybe think about too much compared to others, where you're, you're you're selling a product where you do not know the cost of goods sold at the time of sale, and I can't think of another industry where that is true. Okay, I want to reflect on what Nick just said. You're selling a product where you do not know the cost of goods sold at the time of sale. Now, in most businesses, maybe all, when you offer something, you know how much it costs you to make it or acquire it or support it. 
that's your cost of goods sold. Have it in insurance. You only know how much it costs you to sell your product and whether you made any money by looking back at the end of the year and comparing your claims, i.e. your cost of goods sold, to your premium, what you brought in, and therefore understand your loss ratio. So that's partly why insurtech disruption is not so easy. And you're going to hear Nick talk about full stack. If you're not familiar with that term, well, insurtech borrowed it from technology. And in the case of insurers, full stack refers to companies that are handling everything from liaising with customers, building their own technology, and underwriting off their own capacity. A bit like traditional insurers. Now, back to Nick. What that means is that if you take a more optimistic view uh, versus your competitors, you know you can grow a lot but the challenge you know will always come down to can you over time grow profitably and i think what we've seen with with some of the ipos is maybe investor attention you know uh, in, in in recent years has been more focused on pure sort of top line growth and that those kind of numbers but has now sort of moved a bit more towards focusing on, on loss ratios underwriting profitability and the like which is more in line with, with how the sort of incumbent uh, listed companies uh, that's the lens that you would assess those um, companies uh, through the other sort of change is that you know that those insurtechs that, that have IP you know their business models don't look that different now uh, to, to a more seasoned in, in insurance company and you've seen you know many more companies have to own a balance sheet they're more of a full stack model and, and when they sort of you know you know look and smell a little bit like the seasoned companies they're probably going to be valued or judged in, in sort of uh, similar ways but i think over time you know longer term investors should welcome more realistic valuations for companies you know that, that list at a reasonable price and and are likely uh, to, to reward investors but whether this has a knock-on impact for for aspiring insurance ipos you know, probably uh, and but it, there isn't you know, huge difference between this and what happens in 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 um in private markets, you know, if you sort of raise a lot of money on excessive valuation privately uh, and then don't meet those expectations, you're probably faced with a down round. And you're, you're kind of seeing that sort of thing mirrored to some degree on the uh, public side now. And then, Nick, just talking about, again, from a personal perspective, we've had this sort of short times coined, I guess, seven or eight years ago now. But from innovation itself, what are you seeing in that period of time? And, and particularly, what are people looking at today? with regards to what insurers and the established insurers and the ones you're talking to really care about when it comes to innovation? Yeah, I think, you know, a, a few years ago, you saw some of the um, the traditional companies, shall we say, in contrast to the insurtechs, you know, and some more than others, uh, start to sort of demonstrate to investors through presentations and disclosures that how they were being innovative, you know, whether that was forming venture units or, or whatever uh, it, it might have been. And Today, I think a lot of that is, is still happening, but it's much more sort of embedded within, you know, or, or business as usual. I think the general point is that what the incumbents have really had is is effectively a shot in the arm because their their their, their toolbox has become a lot bigger. Uh, you know, in terms of the, the, what they could potentially use, whether internally, externally, a combination uh, of the, of the two, uh, and I think what you really We'll start to to see is is those sort of difference in 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 returns that I talked about earlier across the industry. They're probably going to widen, uh, if anything, because it's more likely than not that the industry leaders are going to take advantage of some of those uh, uh, tools a little bit better than others within that. So, Nick, if you're looking forward, what do you think the future is going to look like for success with regards to innovation and technology? Is it 
going to be focused around more startups creating it was called disruption once but it, it, driving change more fast than it might have happened with established companies or are we seeing a shift now where the established companies from technology and that might be 10 years older or more are are actually the key drivers to creating change in insurance i think the balance of power is moving a bit more towards the the, the data side you know, and that, that's because we're living in a probably a bit more machine learning driven world than the pure ai one uh, of a few years ago uh, so you know that that sort of uh, meaning that it's not just about you as a, a company incumbent or otherwise recruiting an army of data scientists and phds it's about have you got uh, the right sort of data uh, with, within that. And, and you know, many insurance companies have that data, whether it's usable or not, that's a whole different uh, debate and how it is. But I, but I tend to find that, you know, those most successful insurers uh, have been the ones who have leveraged the data asset before. Now they've got a whole new tool. So I'm probably a little bit biased, but I do think, you know, the balance of power is shifting slightly more towards those, um, the, those incumbents over time. And one, one sort of phrase that I've, been using more and more is sort of data is 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 the new code uh, to to some extent, which is a phrase I, I think I heard on one of your podcasts. So I've shamelessly uh, been borrowing that. So uh, thank you to the previous guest who provided that uh, excellent little uh, soundbite. I love it. Keep, keep, keep me on my toes, but by quoting back previous guests, and I'm glad you didn't use the term "data is in the oil" because that's kind of really been sort of overused. So data is a new code. You heard it here. You heard it here second time round. <laughs> So, uh, as, as fascinating as insurance and technology is, there's a risk it can kind of consume too much of our lives. So, is there any any room in your life for anything else outside of your uh, day job? Uh, yeah, well, now I've been working in this industry now for for over for twin over twenty years, and so I've had a sort of front row seat on climate change. And, and when I started out doing this, you know, most of the focus when it came to to catastrophes was on hurricane and earthquakes, but now, in, in recent years, you can add all the secondary perils like flood, drought, and wildfire. And, and, and given the, the size of some of these things, you know, maybe the term secondary perils is not even a valid one to use. Now, having sort of had this front row seat, I felt probably I could I could do a, a little bit more uh, around everything. And and I think at that time, the, the whole um, narrative was evolving from one of you know we all just need to cut. Uh, carbon emissions to one where you know the importance of biodiversity was being brought into sharper focus whether that be from you know the things that sort of David Attenborough was doing and talking about restoring biodiversity uh, uh, and by rewilding the planet and I think you know that biodiversity and if you look at the stats you know it's quite shocking you know 60 percent or so collapse around the world since 1970 you know the uk's record is as bad as anyone's on that so uh, so when I, I do have a bit of time uh, that's what, where i like to spend it is really helping a number of charities uh, usually within the rewilding space uh, and trying to make a little bit of difference it does touch a little bit on the nature-based solutions that we talked about earlier so um and doing a little bit of things for for a number of them that, that's a bit more than just simply uh, writing a check. So uh, um, watch this space for uh, developments there over time. No, and I look forward to it. I mean, I, I, and you and I have talked about this before, and I know you know, part of that is not directly around rewilding, but it's certainly, as you said, sort of nature-based solutions, and we're definitely going to be hearing hearing more about that. Uh, and then, and finally, you've been doing this for twenty years. Uh, you've still got a lot of life left in you. Uh, what, what do you think the next 10 years are going to look like for uh, Poda Capital? And, and I should also add that there's a lot of really interesting information on what Poda Capital is doing and, and what you personally are doing that's publicly available on the website and recommend people to that. But, but you know, what, what's, what's going to happen next? 
when I look at things over, so the, the strategy has been going for 23 years, I, I've done 20 of those. You know, the sort of measuring stick of our company's performance has been growing that book value by uh, 11% over, over, over time, which, uh, you know, uh, d- depends on your, your viewpoint, maybe excited or not. But actually, the magic of compounding says, you know, if companies can generate that sort of value uh, that, that and, and their share prices follow suit, um, that, that doubles your money in six and a half years. And I do think that sort of compounding angle gets uh, lost uh, you know, to, 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 to some people who don't sort of sit up and think about it. I think today, what's exciting as, as I sort of you know, end, enter my third decade is I think our companies might be able to do a little bit better than that, given we've had four years or so of hardening insurance pricing, uh, prospective investment returns are rising as well, given that bond yields have gone up pretty significantly uh, this year uh, so far. But I think you know, the point I would make is that you know the insurance industry you know it is a really sort of get rich slow industry it's one where you know success comes from not making mistakes and and it's part of a you know a financial markets where you know, they're very myopic it's all about the next quarter earnings it's all about you know the get rich quick kind of schemes and sadly many investors don't have the sort of patience uh, for the time it takes for compounding to work its magic but i, I think you know, all of this all sounds very sort of financial uh, uh, related in terms of uh, compounding, whether it's investment returns or, or whatever else it is. But actually, you know, probably the real lesson is the power of compounding can be applied to anything, you know, and it really pays to adopt habits where you know the benefits compound over time. You know, obvious ones, you know, exercise, proper sleep in your, your relationships and I actually think what you do, uh, Matthew, with uh, Instech and all your team is a great example of, of compounding at work and i'm sure you have some hardcore uh listeners who listen to everything you do read everything you write but there's probably others as well that that, that may not be as regular listeners to this podcast or or, or read your material or attend one of your uh, events even and i do think you know every, everyone would benefit doing a little bit more and taking advantage of what you guys have built up over the last um a few years because I do think the benefits of being active in the insect community they they do compound over time uh, and people should take advantage of that and if and if we do uh, I think it makes help you know this the wonderful industry we're all part of just that little bit better yeah no there's so many so many great things in there I mean that the compounding one, partly that's a factor of age, isn't it? The longer you live, the more you sort of, the more you realize that life doesn't have to be solved in one year. And I think anybody getting too heavily involved in crypto realizes that's a very volatile one. And thank you very much for the support for Instat, you know, both there and what you've been doing. And I think the other one I'd add to your your list of different ways that compounding works, and it sort of relates to what you said, but it's it's actually the people you meet. You, you meet people at one event or wherever you meet them, have a discussion. The next time you meet them, you're building on that yeah, previous discussion, uh, and so yeah, very interesting. That whole, I mean, it feels a whole book. Then you, you retire, <laughs> you could write. You know, the power of compounding. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but don't I'll put that on the to do list. I think <laughs> maybe for the Good. fourth or fifth well, decade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really enjoy that as always, and uh, it's great now that we're back face to face seeing you. And if anybody wants to contact you personally you know just some of the, the personal interests you've got what's the best way to uh, to get yeah I'm, i mean as, as you said there's there's lots of information on the polar capital w- website I, I'm, I'm not hard to find uh on on, on other mediums uh, as well uh, but if people do struggle you know if, if they 
contact you you know where i am i'm more than happy to uh come back to people so uh thank you very much it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and we have to go for a, a hat trick a podcast in the in the not too distant future <laughs> well we've got it actually because you're in podcast number three or four so you've already achieved the hat trick you've now you've done the most podcasts nick that's tremendous okay well listen i'll let you go and get back to your day job but thank you very much fantastic thank you matthew That's it for today. We're busy with reports, events, and discussions around the world. All you need to know is at www.instec.io. If you're an insurer wanting to understand more about the world around you or a technology company that is driving innovation, and you are not already one of our corporate members, drop us an email, hello at instec.co, or to me directly, Matthew Grant, on matthew at instec.co. Polar Capital have asked us to add that past performance is not a guide to or indicative of future results.